So you can open your Bibles once again to Philippians chapter 1, if you're not there already. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 27 is where we left off, and we're going to go to chapter 2 and verse 4. In this section, uh, Paul is exhorting the Philippians to their conduct and what their conduct should look like. Uh, Mike told us about the theme in chapter 1 was to live as Christ. That should be, we should be all about Christ. And if we're all about Christ, Paul is telling them that should be reflected in your conduct. And it should be reflected in your conduct toward the outside world, to those who are not believers. And it should be reflected in your conduct toward those in the body of Christ as well. So before we go any further and read these verses together, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, faithful brothers and sisters in the past, Lord. Thank you for Paul, Lord, and his testimony and testimony of so many others. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful. And I pray that you would speak what you want to speak to all of us here this evening, Lord. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a quick little recap. So if the theme in chapter 1 is we're to be all about Christ, Christ is our life, then that should be exemplified in how we are living, in our nature, in certain ways. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 8, we can see there, we're just going to go quick, just look at a couple verses before we jump into this section as a way of summary. In chapter 1, verse 8, we see there that the feelings of Christ should be represented in our lives. That should be a goal of ours, to have the feelings of Christ. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see there that we should have the same interest as Christ. At the end of verse 18, he says, And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice, that the gospel is preached, that if Christ is our life, we're going to have the same interest as Christ. If you look at chapter 1, verse 19, we see there that if he is our life, that the spirit of Christ will be alive and working in us, it tells us there. And in the next verse, in verse 20, we'll see if Christ is our life, that he will be our supreme concern. He says there in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. That's what Paul cared most about, whether by life or by death. And then in verse 23, if you look there, we saw that Christ will become the object of our longing desire. Paul said, ultimately, I long to be with him. That is my number one desire. If I have to stay here, then I'm going to live for the sake of others. And now, as we get to these verses here, we're going to see that if we're all about Christ, again, that should determine what our actions look like. Some of you may have heard, if you've heard Bible studies, you may have heard people say the phrase, we should have a belief that behaves, right? James says that faith without works is dead faith, that our works, our conduct should be evidence of the reality of our faith. And if our conduct looks the way that it should, that will affect the people around us and their attitude toward us. So let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 27. 
Paul says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or their ultimate judgment, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. So there is a way our conduct should look toward the outside world, he says in this first section. And then in the first four verses in chapter 2, he's going to tell us that he's going to urge the church in Philippi to unity, that there should be unity within the body of Christ, and our conduct should look a certain way to maintain that unity, because as you guys know, even in a family, things are not always perfect. Sometimes there's contention and fights. So he says this in chapter 2, verse 1, down to verse 4, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ or encouragement, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So, if we go back to verse 27, he first urges us, that our conduct should look a certain way as believers. And he says there, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. And the verb that he used, that uses there, the action that he's calling to us to, comes from a word that is the word that is basically politics, right? What he's telling us is we should behave the way citizens are supposed to behave because of the place they are from. And he tells us in chapter 3, verse 20, that we are citizens of heaven. So since we are from, we belong to heaven, we will be there one day, that is our ultimate home, we should act a certain way if that is the reality. Um, My dad and I have had a privilege together to get to go to Israel a handful of times in my life. It was really awesome. Anyone ever been to Israel? Really great, uh, awesome trip. Uh, one of the trips we were on, we're walking around in the streets and had some free time and uh, looking for a place to eat. And there's a lot of good places to eat in Israel. And um, we found this restaurant, had some outdoor seating, and uh, took a seat there. And the waiter very kindly came over to us, and I, he probably noticed we were tourists. And he said, uh, just so you guys know, this is the non-meat section. And we're like, okay, we're going to move over here to the meat section, right? It was very apparent to him that we were not citizens of Israel by the way that we were acting, although we were ignorant of how it was. But it was very apparent to him that we were not from there. And when the world sees us and how we act, it should be apparent to them there's something different about us in our action and in our conduct. Uh, Warren Wearsby, in his Bible commentary, he tells a story of a person who came up to their pastor, and they asked him this question. They said, we have some neighbors who are 
believing in a false gospel. Do you have some literature that we can give them? The pastor opened his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul says this, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. And the pastor said, The best literature in the world is no substitute for your own life. Let them see Christ in your behavior, and this will open up opportunities to share the gospel with them. So our behavior should make a difference. People should see a difference in us, and that then should lead potentially to opportunities to share the gospel with the unbelieving world. So in verse 27, he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so so that whether I come and see you or am absent, Again, as Mike said earlier, he loved these people. He had been with them. He says, I may hear of your affairs, using an action word again there. He wants to hear of their conduct being worthy of the gospel. And so what might that look like? How might we act if he's calling us to action? Well, he says that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. Again, he's calling them to unity, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul is emphasizing the importance of unity here by using a Greek word, that phrase there, it says striving together. It literally means striving together as athletes. So some of you guys are going to compete here in some games this weekend. You'll, You'll have a team and as a team, as a body of Christ, Paul is saying we, we work together, right? We're a team. We have the same rule book. We have to abide by rules, the Bible, and we have the same goal, and that goal is to glorify Christ and to share the gospel with the world around us. I I had the pleasure of getting to coach basketball here at our high school for several, several years, and when you look at a team working together It only takes one person. Some of you guys who have competed in sports, you you can relate to this. If you're not a sports person, just imagine this to be true. I promise you can take my word for it. It only takes one person not abiding by the rules to affect the whole and the goal of, you know, maybe winning that game, but also the bigger goal. And for us in the Christian life, it only takes one person you or I, if we are compromising when it comes to the rule book, the word of God, that affects the whole team. Just like if we were playing basketball, right? You keep passing your teammate and every time he travels, you're like, come on, man, what's going on? Like, that's not going to be helpful for the team. You're not going to reach your goal. The enemy wants us to think at times that if we're there's sin in our life or some kind of compromise, that it's not affecting anyone. It's okay. No one sees. But that will always affect the team and the overall goal of getting the gospel out to the world. You know, unfortunately, sometimes people see Christians and see them fail, and they use that as an excuse to not, uh, they say Christians are, you know, um, they're ignorant or like, you know, they're, they're uh, what's the word? Hypocrites, that's the one. That's the fun one they like to use all the time. Hypocrites, right? They look at people not living the way they should, and they use that as an excuse. Well, I can't control what other people do in their lives, but I can 
live the way God's calling me to live, and that is going to be healthy for the overall body of Christ. So he's giving this idea here that our conduct should be reflective of the place that we are citizens of, which is heaven. We are a team striving together for one goal. So if we carry this out naturally, if we are a part of a team, the body of Christ, we all have one goal, that means that there is an opponent on the other side, right? There is an adversary on the other side who will be opposed to us if we're living the way we should be living, if we're standing out in the world, there's going to be people who then react to that. There's an enemy, right? There's an adversary that we're in this battle against. And he's, point, he's going to point that out in the next set of verses. Look at verse 28. It's kind of like a good news, bad news thing. He says, And not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. So good news, bad news, right? If someone says, hey, I got good news and bad news, I guess you pick the bad news first. I don't know. That was kind of always where my, my mind goes. So what's the bad news here? Well, we know Jesus said in John 16:33, in the world you will have tribulation. If you are li- all about Christ, if you're living life of Christ, if you're striving for that, there's going to be tribulation. There's going to be some type of suffering. 1 Timothy 3:12 says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So that's not the most encouraging thing to hear, right? You, none, none of us would sign up on a sign-up sheet for persecution. Uh, now, the people he was writing to, some of their lives, and Paul was in prison, right, for what he believed. Some of their lives were literally being threatened for what they believed. You and I are probably not at that point in the world we live in, but we do face ridicule, mocking. There is spiritual warfare, Right? If you've ever had thoughts such as, uh, you know, the Bible is just kind of boring, or it's hard to understand, or, um, you know, I have, I have other things I'd rather do, those thoughts that are not, they're not of God, they're discouraging you from being in the Word or living the way we're called to live, those are from an enemy. Those are from the opposition. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way, but there is an adversary, whether it's someone that we can literally see who might be making fun of us or mocking us or the spirit behind that. However, Paul says, you can be encouraged in this. Don't be afraid. Look what he says there in verse 28. You can actually have confidence. Although there is an adversary, there's a few reasons why you can have confidence in this battle. If you're living the way you should be living, sometimes people get discouraged, right? Um, I've talked to plenty of people here in, in church or in other places that, that say, like, I'm living, you know, I'm trying to honor God with my life and do the things I should do, and, like, I'm not getting the things that I think that I want, or my life is not great right now. Paul says here that there are some things we can take an encouragement in if we're facing persecution or suffering in our lives. Number one, look what he says. He says, don't be terrified of your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, 
but you of salvation and that from God. Paul says, if you are being opposed, if you're being made fun of for the cause of Christ, if there is clearly an adversary, if there's persecution in your life, that's a sign that you're on the right team. It's actually a sign that you're saved. It should be proof that you're saved, that you're fighting on the right side. The good news is that we are fighting from victory. It'd be like showing up to you know, a, a competition, basketball, whatever, and you already know, hey, we're the winning team. right? That would give you some confidence. You already know we're going to win. There's no mystery. And Paul is saying you can take confidence in the fact that just because you're receiving opposition, that means you're on the right side. It should be proof that you are saved. He also says in verse 29, now this might not seem as encouraging, but bear with me. Look what he says. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul says it's actually a gift to suffer for the cause of Christ. He calls it later in chapter 3, the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't always put those two words together, right? Gift and suffering. When we think of gift, we think of something else like free Chick-fil-A, right? On a Thursday night, that, that's a gift, right? We don't always think of gift and suffering going together. But what Paul is saying is if we know Christ has suffered for us, what great things he has done for us, what he went through for us, we should count it a privilege if we are asked to suffer in some way. We'll never suffer the way he did, but if we are asked to suffer in some way for his sake because we're living the way we should be living, then that is actually a gift from the Lord. And the last thing he says there, if you look at verse 30, he says, having the same conflict, we can be encouraged in this, which you saw in me and now hear in me. Paul is telling them, I'm going through the same trials and conflict and suffering and persecution that you're facing. We can know that others experience the same conflict that we do. Again, our adversary, the enemy, he wants to isolate us and he wants us to think that the things that I struggle with, it's only me, no one else is going through this. He doesn't want us to be in fellowship because when we're together, we're called to encourage each other, to love and good works. We realize that, hey, we're in this together, we're a team, we all go through similar things. And Paul says, you can be encouraged that others are experiencing the same thing that you are experiencing, the same conflict, the same type of suffering. And that's why he's calling them to have that one mind. We have the same goal. We're in this together. No one is meant to walk this life, the life of Christ, alone. So there he's encouraging them, right, to live the way they should live in the face of opposition from conflict that might come without. And if the first whole chapter of Philippians, as Mike said, is about Christ being our life, then now as we move into chapter 2 and we look at these first four verses, it shifts the focus is toward Christ and the mind of Christ and having his mind if he is our life. And he's going to exhort them that having the mind of Christ, what he, which he'll call a submissive mind, having lowliness of mind, having that mind will help us 
when there is the threat of conflict in our family from inside, not coming from outside the church, maybe from unbelievers, but there is the threat of conflict sometimes from within, within our family. And he's saying the way we fight against that or make sure we keep away from that is to have the mind of Christ. So look what he says in verse 1 in chapter 2. He says, therefore, this might seem kind of weird, but I'll explain it. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded with him, with Christ, having the same love like his as Christ, being of one accord and of one mind. What he's doing here is he's giving them in these first two verses an exhortation to have the mind of Christ. And he's giving them some rhetorical questions. So if you look at verse 1 again, you could read it this way. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort of love from him, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and mercy from God, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Since these things are true, then we should seek to adopt those things of God because they should be true in us. And he says, be like-minded with him, having the same love as his, and being of one accord and of one mind. Basically, it would be like if Paul said, since fire is hot and since rocks are hard and since water is wet, we all know these things are true. Therefore, there is a conclusion we would come to based on those things. That's what he's saying here. So just really quickly, if we look at some of these phrases, first thing he says is there is consolation in Christ or there is encouragement. How do we know that? Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we'll give you a couple references if you're taking notes. It says there that one of the titles of Jesus as Messiah is the consolation of Israel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. He also says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, that God has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by Christ. So that is true. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort in love. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. Now, I know some of you are thinking here, what might be the Greek root word of that word comfort, or the Latin root word? I'm glad you asked that. I'll tell you guys. The word comfort there comes from the Greek word, which is periklesis. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'll say it as best as I can, which means to make strong. And it also comes from the Latin word fortis, which means to make brave. So we see the love of God makes us strong and brave. It does. He's saying that is true. And then the next thing, the third thing he says is, since there is fellowship of the Spirit. He talked about that in chapter 1. Give you a little more Greek, because I know you guys like that first Greek lesson. That word fellowship, fellowship of the Spirit, comes from a Greek word, which is koinonia. Some of you guys may have heard that before, which means sharing of things in common. So we now live this new life. If we're living the life all about Christ, we want to have the mind of Christ. We share the life w with the Spirit, 
and God now. We're sharing in life with him. It's not all about the things that I want to do. It's, Lord, what do you want me to do by your Holy Spirit? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, some of you guys know these verses. It says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That is true. We live in the spirit. We should. And then the last thing he says there is, since there is affection and mercy in God and from God. And I think we need not look any further than the cross, right? The life that Jesus lived, he displayed great affection and mercy toward us all the way to the cross, giving his life for us, and also his resurrection. So, since all these things are true, he's calling us to be like-minded. We are to also have these things represented in, a, in us, in our lives, encouragement from Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the affection of mercy. And he says, fulfill in verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded with him, having the same love as his, and being of one accord and of one mind. So what that might, what might that practically look like? And that's what he's going to tell us in verses 3 and 4 here. Now, in the rest of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're going to see how Jesus exemplified the mind of Christ. We're not going to look at that because Brian's going to teach those verses on Friday night. But Paul is going to generally say, okay, I, I believe, I, I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to exemplify this in my life. What might that look like practically? Well, he's going to tell us here. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, this is where we should start if we want to have the mind of Christ. And again, this is what encourages unity in the body of Christ. He says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Ambition is not wrong. It's not wrong to have a plan, to want to do things, to want to accomplish things, but he says, selfish ambition. That is what we want to avoid. Let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. That word conceit means excessive pride, right? That's not a good thing. But in contrast to that, we should have lowliness of mind. This is what the mind of Christ in us should look like. It's the opposite, right, of selfish ambition, of excessive pride. He says, let each esteem others better or more important than himself. That can be a challenge sometimes because we're all about ourselves. A lot of times we want to serve ourselves, we want to please ourselves. And he says, but the mind of Christ is to think of others more important than self. And that's a, a daily uh, task we are to live in, again, because we are by nature selfish beings. And in verse 4, he says, Let each of you, carrying on with this theme of selflessness, look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So it's not wrong to seek to do things for yourself or to ask the Lord for things in my own life for me, it should be according to the will of God, right? I, if I want a new car, and uh, that can serve God's will. It can help me drive around and do things for him, right? It's okay to ask things for myself, but he says, but also 
we should be looking out for the interests of others. We should not be primarily focused on just enhancing our own lives. And the culture that we live in preaches that message to you. You guys know this, right? It's about living to please yourself. If you're not happy, you need to love yourself more, right? You need to do the things that you find happiness in, that you find pleasure in to help yourself. Paul is saying that is not the mind of Christ. That is not what we're called to. It's completely the opposite. He says, let each of you look out for not only his own interests, but for the interests of others. And he'll go on to show how, again, Jesus exemplified this. But I think that in a a lot of these verses in Philippians, as I was reading through the entire book, don't worry, I'm not going to teach the entire book, but I think that Paul himself exemplified how he found that living with the mind of Christ brought joy into his life. Warren Wearsby in his commentary said this, this is a heavy-hitting statement here. He says, There can be no joy in the life of a Christian who puts himself above others. There can be no joy in the life of a Christian who puts himself above others. Again, in years past, we've had like tournaments here where we competed and there might be a sign-up sheet. Yeah, we want to get together, get a couple friends together. We want to get in the volleyball tournament, sign up for that. Sign up for the Gaga Ball tournament. Uh, if we had a sign-up sheet out there that said, no joy. I don't think anyone would put their name on that sign-up sheet. To live a night life with no joy. But here, I think Paul found, and we're going to look at some of these verses, that having the mind of Christ, thinking of others before self, he found true joy in that life. He found that. So bear with me. We're going to look at some verses here. I don't want to teach Pastor Brian's section from Friday night, so I'm just going to teach everyone else's section. No, not going to do that. But I just want to look at some key phrases. I think you'll notice what I notice is that Paul lived this out, this mind, this selfless mind that Christ exemplified, and that he also found that there was true joy in living that out. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, right off the bat, he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a bondservant. Again, putting others before self, looking to serve others. Look at verse 3 in chapter 1. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, thinking of those in Philippi, All verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. He found joy in praying and making requests for others. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel and from the first until now. Look at verse 7 in chapter 1, 7 and 8. He says, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, again, thinking of those he's writing to, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. And then verse 8, he says, for God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Or he says, I long for you all in the very heart of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. Again, thinking of others, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, 
that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. As Mike said earlier, he was concerned with others. He was concerned with the gospel being preached. Even though his circumstances were not perfect, these were the things on his mind, and he found joy in that. Look at verse 18 in chapter 1. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice that Christ is preached. Not thinking of himself, he could have easily been thinking about how this is difficult, it's not fun being here in jail, but he's thinking about the gospel being preached. Again, that's the goal we have as a team serving together. Look at verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. This was his primary concern, whether by life or death, for to me is live is Christ and to die is gain. Look at verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you, thinking of those in Philippi at the church that he loved and being confident of this, verse 25, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. He was concerned about their growth, their spiritual growth, their joy, and to him, to see that brought him joy in his own life and in his walk with the Lord. A couple more verses. Now look at chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Just a couple of these phrases Again, Paul being selfless, right? Verse 16, chapter 2, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I may have to run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Again, verse 19 in chapter 2, he says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus and send Timothy to you shortly, that also may be encouraged when I know your state. He is thinking about their state, not his own state, how he could have felt sorry for himself being in prison and in jail. He was thinking of their mindset, their joy. Now look at verse 28 in chapter 2. A few more. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, speaking of Epaphroditus, and whilst we see Timothy and Epaphroditus lived this out as well, but we're just focusing on Paul right now. He says, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that you may see him again, and you may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Paul says, I will be less sorrowful knowing that you are rejoicing because Epaphroditus has returned to you, that that will bring me joy. And then look at chapter 3, a couple verses there, and a couple verses in 4 as we begin to wrap this up here. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Again, rejoice in him and rejoice in that goal to make Christ known. And finally, look at his heart toward the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1. Look how he speaks toward them. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown... 
So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. His heart toward them, that was his focus, right? Being others-centered, being selfless, having the mind of Christ, lowliness of mind. In verse 4 in chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in him always. And again, I say, rejoice. It is easy to become discouraged based off of the circumstances we're in or the things happening in our family or relationships. But Paul says, you can always rejoice in the Lord. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you. He will never abandon you. And finally, verse 17 in chapter 4, he says, I don't seek the gift. So they had sent them, Mike said earlier, they through Epaphroditus, Philippians had sent Paul a gift. He was thankful for it, but he said, I'm really glad you guys did that. I didn't really need it. I didn't seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He was concerned with them being blessed for the gift that they sent to him. This is the selfless mind that Paul, I think, very clearly exemplified in these words in Philippians, and he found joy in that life. Again, back to that Wiersbe quote. Those, those who are Christians who are not exhibiting this or putting others, not putting others before self, there is no joy in that life. This is, as Sidlow Baxter says in his commentary, this is the natural, inevitable expression of the mind of Christ through the believer in whom his life is not being obstructed. So there are things that threaten to obstruct this mind of Christ being in our lives and being shown to the world. It can be selfishness, right? Selfish ambition. Go back to what Paul said in verse 3. Selfish ambition or pride. Those are things that can threaten to block out this reality that should be in our lives, the mind of Christ. I would challenge you to think tonight, and in my own life, I ask myself this question. Are there things in your life that are threatening to obstruct the mind of Christ, this lowliness of mind from being exemplified and lived out, right? Your conduct, is there things in your life that are threatening to obstruct that, which should be there? One more quote for you guys. Dean Alford says in his commentary, the great love wherewith he loved us, Christ, lives and yearns in all who are vitally united to him. So that is a reality. If we're saved, that love dwells within us. However, our consciousness of it is determined by the depth of our consecration to him. The more that we live the way we're called to live, again, as citizens of heaven, the more we have that unifying mindset, the more we are pressing forward in that, the more that reality of the love of Christ and his mind, that selfless mind, will naturally just be seen in our lives. So I'd like to do this as we prepare to do some worship, and uh, Tom and the worship team can come back. I would invite you guys to pray. Maybe you can pray in your own heart. Um, We'll have... Some, some of our staff maybe will be around um, in the back, standing in the back, if you guys want to be there, available. Maybe someone from your own team that came with you, one of your own youth leaders. If you feel burdened to pray about some of these things, um, first of all, I would say this. 
we have an adversary, right? And Paul says we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be terrified. The idea is like a horse running away from battle, right? We don't have to be terrified. We can have confidence. Maybe tonight you're someone who struggles, right? You have fear, the thought of suffering for Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 8 encourages us and he says that if we suffer with Christ, the good news is that means we're going to be glorified with him, the fellowship of his sufferings. Maybe just fear is something that you struggle with and it grips you. Listen to these words of Paul. Take encouragement from them. If you need prayer in that area, say, I just want to overcome the fear that I have of man, of people, of people's thoughts, or of people making fun of me because I'm a believer. I want to have that confidence and not be afraid, as Paul exhorted us to. I would encourage you to pray. Pray with someone. Pray in your own heart. Also, if there's something in your life that you know is obstructing the, uh, that mind of Christ from being seen in you, right? Maybe some selfishness, maybe something you, you know you struggle with and you, you're thinking, I want to grow. I want to be more consecrated, more set apart. I want to live a holy life for him. I want to be all about Christ. I want people to see his mind in me, but I need to grow in that. I would encourage you to ask for prayer in that area as well. And the last thing I'll just say is maybe you're someone who you're just like, I don't really have a lot of joy tonight. Um, I haven't had a lot of joy in my life lately. And maybe we look at Paul and see how this other-centered, selfless life brought joy to him, and maybe you just want to live in that. You know you need to live in that. Or maybe you've never experienced the joy of living and walking with Christ because you don't really know him. And you're thinking, I want to have that love in me. I want to have the mind of Christ. And for the first time in my life, maybe you want to surrender to him so you can actually live with joy despite all the difficult things you might face in circumstances. You can have joy having that mind of Christ. So I would encourage you to think on these things. If you want prayer, find someone to pray with. I'll be standing in the back as well. And the rest of us, we're going to worship. If you want, pray in your own heart, but let these things speak to you and uh, press forward in them. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are with us here, Father. And um, I pray that we would all seek to grow, Lord, in these things, that you would show us, Lord, the ways that we need to step aside in our lives and be more other-centered and that that would be healthier for our, Lord, our churches and the bodies that we live and serve in. And um, I pray that you would deliver us from fear, Lord, the things that we're afraid of. We know that we don't have to be. I pray that we would take encouragement in these words. And I pray that you would show us, Lord, how to live a, a selfless life, Lord, finding joy in you and no other thing, Lord. I pray that we would just block out the voices of the world that tries to tell us that we should live selfishly, Lord. And I pray that we would choose to live a life that honors you and that is selfless. So we thank you for being with us here this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.